How's it going everyone? It's Connor and I am back with another episode, episode number 12 of Money and Plants, the number one business and health podcast in the country. I'm excited to be back this week. I'm going to be talking about the property market, the housing market, what's happening in that, where is that going? And as you all know, who's not interested in property? I myself, I'm a professional chartered surveyor. I've been working in the property market for the last 20 odd years. I'm a member of the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors. Lots of my friends and colleagues and lots of my network is working in the industry. And what we all know is that Irish people, for some reason, are obsessed with the property market. They're obsessed with owning their own house. They're obsessed with buying property. They're obsessed with property, full stop. So five months into the pandemic, what is going on in the housing market? How is the pandemic How is COVID-19 impacting the property market in Northern Ireland? That's the big questions that I will be putting to this week's guest. I am delighted that Jordan Buchanan, the Chief Economist of Property Pal, is back in the show for his third time on Money and Plants. Jordan is one of the top local economists in Northern Ireland right now. If you haven't come across any of his work, look him up. He is quite active on Twitter and LinkedIn. And it's worth listening to what Jordan has to say on all things economics. I'm delighted that he's back on the show and we have a really interesting, wide-ranging conversation about banks, about the availability of mortgage products, about house sales, of where all of that's going. We talk about the non-performing loans that are now creeping up in the Irish banking system. That's not good, folks. I have been talking about NPLs now for five months. We also touch on unemployment. We talk about why it's really important that people get back to work. That's a very interesting topic. It's quite an emotional thing. People have different views on that, but me and Jordan lift the bonnet on that and we unpack some of the thoughts around why it's so important that we all get back to work. That conversation is coming up very, very soon. Before that, It's my thought for the week. I've changed the title on this part of the podcast to my rant of the week because I was sick of giving out about things. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to share some of the things that, as you know, as a a regular listener, if this is your first podcast, I am an avid reader. I'm reading two or three books at any one time. I'm listening to podcasts every single day because what I'm trying to do is create some content to educate, inform, and maybe inspire some of my listeners to make better choices in life, both on the business front and the health front. That's what I've been doing. I've created 11 episodes of Money and Plants. I have had some amazing guests, some great tips in there, and the plan is to continue this journey on for the next few weeks anyway, to see where we get to. So without further ado, let's roll the tip on my thoughts of the week.
I thought it was important this week when I do the podcast that I pay a small tribute to uh, John Hume, the late John Hume, who died earlier this week. And I think I am in my early 40s and I'm someone who grew up in Northern Ireland in County Tyrone. And when I was a teenager, I grew up really in the midst of the Troubles and I seen quite a lot uh, up until the ceasefire. And obviously over the last 20 to 25 years, we have been living in, in relative peace. And I think it's important, I think whenever someone dies, I think lots of people seem to come out of the woodwork and talk about you know, people whenever they pass. And I think this week, if you look at social media and you listen to the news and you look at what people are saying about John Hume, I think what would sum him up is that he really was an incredible person. I think if you look at the RTE broadcaster Miriam O'Callaghan, Miriam reckons that John Hume was the greatest Irishman ever. And if you listen to David McWilliams, he has described John Hume as being one of the best Irish men in the last 100 years. Huge, huge accolades if you consider the number of people that have came and went in that time frame. Like most people in Ireland, I didn't personally know John Hume. i just seen him on the television and watched him for many, many years. But I suppose like lots and lots and lots of people, whenever you see someone so regularly on the television or you read or listen to them for years, you, you sort of think you know them. And for me personally, if I think about John Hume and I never met him, I think of someone who has incredible integrity. I think of stoicism. I think of bravery, I think of the word trust, I think of the word peacemaker, I think of someone who was going beyond the parapet, beyond the line where many would go before him. I think he went to incredible lengths to achieve his ultimate passion and purpose in life, obviously, which was clearly to bring about a settlement in Ireland, a peace settlement, which he played an instrumental part, obviously in the delivery of the Good Friday Agreement. So I think John Hume's legacy is cemented in history. And I think what you're going to do is, and I think this is no bad thing, I think we should all take to YouTube and, and the internet and try and read about the work that, that John Hume done over the years. And I've started this exercise myself because I think it's really important from a personal development point of view that we all learn from, from others and we are open in our mindsets and our thinking to improvement. And I think if you decide upon looking into the life of, of John Hume, I think you will be a better person for it. And one of the exercises I actually did in the last few days was I asked my family what their instant thoughts were whenever they think of John Hume, because none of my family met John Hume, obviously, probably like you, the listener, you didn't know him. But the feedback was all the same. So my mum thought he was a good man, sincere in his words and cherished the people, no matter who they were or what religion or background they were from. John Hume represents fairness for all. He was a man of the people. My sister responded by saying he was a man of integrity and advocate for the people a promoter of equality, caring, gentle, calm, and had a deep faith. My brother responded to my family messenger message, genuinely wanted peace and equal rights for all without the need of violence, but understood that to get peace, you have to engage with the men of violence to achieve the end goal. And finally, my cousin Mark, his views on John Hume. I asked him, what comes to your mind? What do you think about whenever you hear that name? His response was the calm voice of reason among the mayhem. And I think that's a nice way to sum up. But in this small section of Money and Plants, I wanted to share with you something else that maybe John Hume isn't known so well for. And I'm wondering how many people knew that John Hume was one of the founding members of the credit union in Ireland. As this is a business podcast, I think it's important that I share the legacy that John Hume will have left within the incredible work 
that he did with other founding members in the early 60s by setting up the first ever credit union in Ireland. And what John Hume recognised at that time was it was very difficult for poor people to borrow money. At that time, there was no real liquidity in the marketplace and most people struggled to pay their bills. And what we know is that money gives freedom to people. It allows people to plan, it allows them to pay for things, it allows them to invest in things. And John Hume seen the civil right and the social rights that have an a funding source having access to finance the improvement that this might implement and this might help people in their own lives so that's something that i think you should do further research on the legacy that john hume has left in terms of the outstanding service that the credit unions have subsequently went on to bring right through every town and village right across the island of ireland the credit union certainly is an excellent resource. It provides a wonderful service still to this very day. And I know at this at this point in time in, with COVID and the pandemic, the, the businesses within the credit unions right across the island of Ireland are actually getting busier. And I often, through my own business, we I own a, a lending business, Clearpath Finance. I often direct people who are looking to borrow money or looking some financial assistance, I often direct them to the credit union. So I just wanted to share that with you in, in terms of opening up this section of the podcast in terms of my thoughts for the week, which is really a dive into my subconscious, some of the things that have been occupying my, my mind this week. And I thought it was important that I recognize and acknowledge the impact and the work of John Hume, that, that basically he went to lengths that nobody else was prepared to do at that time, which ultimately has created this environment, which is a peace environment, which has improved the lives of millions of people for this generation and for generations to come through. So that's the first thing I wanted to mention. That's one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot this week, um, particularly in the evening times, as I do my own research and I'm watching some of the contributions that John Hume made over the last 30 or 40 years. I find them very, very empowering and very educational and very inspiring. So the next thing I want to talk about in terms of what I have been thinking about this week, the kids are back to school. In the last 24 hours, the Minister for Education, Peter Weir, has announced that children in Northern Ireland will be returning to school five days a week from the end of August. Um, my personal view on this, I think it's a, it's a difficult one, um, but my own view would be that uh, the kids need to go back to school. I think... There's quite a bit of evidence to show that kids aren't overly impacted uh, in a too adverse a way with COVID-19. I think there's, there's risk with everything in life, uh, but I think the risk to keeping children locked up in their homes, I think outweighs the potential risk with COVID. That's a personal opinion. Um, I've been thinking about this for months. It's a, it's a very topical discussion, but anyway, to be fair to Peter Weir, I'm normally fairly critical of the Northern Ireland Executive, but to be fair to Peter Weir and to be fair to the Northern Ireland Executive, they've come out this week and they've set their stall out and they've basically said, look, all the kids back to school. And I think what that does, it really helps and, and facilitates the economy in that parents, and particularly people like myself, I'm a single parent to two young kids, a six and a nine-year-old. I had no idea uh, how I was going to manage all of this, um, in particular the the model that was put to me last month was that both kids were put or were going back to school two days a week and I didn't really know how I was going to run my businesses by trying to sort of balance the kids scenario and the school scenario. So at least we have clarity in that. So that's something that I've been thinking about this week and I know it's going to go on and on and that debate will be quite divisive. But for me, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. The next thing I want to talk about that I think is really, really important also is the importance of everyone getting back to work. This is something that I talked to my guest on this week's podcast, Jordan Buchanan. But I think it's really important now. Over the last couple of months, I have been in and out of the office in Belfast. And at times, Belfast has looked like a ghost town. I think it's so important that uh, if you go back to one of my episodes, I think it was episode 10, where I talked to Dr. Paddy Malin, I think it's all really about mitigating risk and everyone taking personal responsibility. Because what I know is, I'm currently reading a book right now called Pale Rider, P-A-L-E Rider by Laura Spiney. And this book is about the Spanish flu of 1918, 
and how it changed the world. And whenever I was trying to figure out how to manage COVID and how to deal with this pandemic, I thought, wouldn't it be useful if I understood what happened in the Spanish flu and how people reacted to at that time, which really was just over 100 years ago. And what I found out, interestingly, from reading this book is that the Spanish flu, in terms of how it played out over the first six months, is absolutely no different to the current pandemic, COVID-19. They went into quarantine. They were using masks. Some of the schools were off. Some of the schools were back. The issues that are coming to the fore now in terms of it being a very divisive debate, the challenges around balancing the economic risk with the health risk, all of those issues, all of those issues were present whenever the Spanish flu went rife around the world in 1918. And one of the really interesting things that I've taken from reading the book, I haven't finished it yet, I will do a full review, is that there was a wave one, there was a wave two, and there was a wave three. Uh, that the way the Spanish flu traveled around the world was normally through travel, was people leaving and moving between countries. And interestingly, what we've seen in the last couple of months as our economy has started to open up, as the global economy has started to open up, as our airports have started to open up, we're starting to see more and more cases of COVID-19. In fact, I think the numbers that I've seen recently in the last week, there are more COVID cases now than there ever has been. I think the case numbers are going up and up and up. And my view would be, if you go back to my podcast with Paddy Mallon, he was sort of saying in that podcast, Paddy Mallon is one of the key doctors in St. Vincent Hospital. He's been, that, he's been at the front line of COVID since the outbreak in Ireland, since March 2020. And Dr. Mallon said in my podcast that he's not so sure that there would be one silver bullet in terms of a vaccine for COVID-19. What he thought was that there might be a combination of medicines that might reduce the impact or stop the progression of the virus. So I think what we can conclude, I think any sort of right mind, right thinking person, if you're following this, it's unlikely that we're going to get a vaccine, a silver bullet in the next six to 12 to 18 months. I've already said in the podcast that the average term to come up with any kind of vaccine is 10 years. Now, I know they can bring that forward, but on a personal thing, point of view, I think this is going to be like this for the next 18 months to two years. And let's just see what's ha what happens and how it all plays out. So that was another point that was exercised in my mind this week in terms of the importance, the importance of people getting back to work. And my final point in this section of the podcast this week is directed towards the Northern Ireland Executive. It's directed towards Arlene Foster. It's a message to Michelle O'Neill. It's a message to the Minister of our Economy, Diane Dodds. It's a message to the entire special advisory team around the Northern Ireland Executive. One of the big concerns I have now, right now as an entrepreneur and a business owner, someone who's contributing to the economy, I'm creating jobs, bringing some money in here, I'm trying to get the thing going. One of my big concerns is that Northern Ireland is going to be left behind. The world is moving on. The world has no real interest in any particular small country. And the challenge that we really have over the next two years with Brexit coming in January and the Bank of England have already put everyone on notice to prepare for a no deal Brexit. We are going to have so many economic challenges in the status quo that we need to be better and work smarter. And what my message to the Northern Ireland Executive is you need to go to Rishi Sunak, you need to go to the Chancellor and you need to ask him for a COVID-19 recovery fund. And I said on a previous podcast that I would suggest that this be a £10 billion COVID fund. And what a gift it is to be a politician right now because money is so cheap, the Bank of England base rate is not 0.1%. There is no reason, there is no reason why the Northern Ireland executive cannot ask the Chancellor and Westminster and Boris Johnson for a COVID-19 relief fund. And I'm suggesting a figure of 10 billion is a good number because I think it would help us protect, protect our economy. I think it would help with jobs. I think it would be the level of investment that we need to see us through the next six to 12 to 18 months. And I haven't just pulled that figure out of the air. If you look at what all our countries are doing, I give this previous example, Austria have got a 50 billion euro fund to fight COVID. If we pro rata the population in Northern Ireland to the Austrian population, we then would get in and around 10 billion euros. And I put this to the Department of Economy, but I'm saying it again, I think 
the Northern Ireland executive now need to up the up their game. They need to be accountable. They need to step forward, and they need to ask for a COVID nineteen recovery fund. Because one of the big problems that we have in Northern Ireland is we have no fiscal autonomy. We cannot raise money. We have to go with the begging bowl to Westminster and ask them for money, and that is a major, major, major problem for Northern Ireland economy for the NIPLC. But I am encouraging anybody I know in government right now to go and ask for a COVID-19 recovery fund. And my concern is that they won't listen, but I hope they do. So it's now August. We are five months into, for most of us, if not all of us, our first ever pandemic. Most people, I don't think anyone listening to this podcast was alive in 1918, hardly. Um, if you are, send me a text. But the point I'm making is we're five months into this new global pandemic. And I think most people that I'm speaking to anyway, there is certainly an element of pandemic fatigue settling in. I think the lockdown uh, was a very novel thing to happen at the time. I think most people enjoyed it for the first four or five weeks. It was, You could say it was exciting for some people. Um, but I think over a period of time, as the months started to go by, people started to get fed up. They started to get sick of Zoom. They started to uh, fall out with maybe their partner. Maybe some people have maybe thrown their partners out of the house. Um, all kinds of shenanigans probably has happened. As, because as human beings, we like our own space. Uh, we like to express ourselves in our own way. And certainly from my own perspective, I was delighted in the last four or five weeks to get back into the office, get back into the city centre to meet the staff and, and start to meet some customers, you know, because I missed that social interaction. I, I missed that interaction with human beings and that, that, that sense of, of connection is something that I think we, we, we had to do without as we were locked up in our homes for a number of months. So certainly anyone I've spoken to over the last few weeks, there's no doubt that pandemic fatigue has settled in. And I think it's really important now that you know we all get try and get back to work as safely as possible. All of the things I've been talking about in terms of personal responsibility, risk mitigation, but we need to all get on with our lives as best we can. And I think that's, that's something that's starting to happen with the, the reopening of schools and people starting to get back into the office and starting to get some kind of normality back anyway. I think that's a really, really good thing. But in relation to the next piece of this podcast and the conversation that I have with our next guest, what we are really trying to unpack is the impact of COVID-19 on the property market. And when I say that, let's break it down again further. We talk about the property market. I'm really talking about the housing market. And what I have done and what myself and my guest, Jordan Buchanan, has done over the next sort of 30 minutes is we've really tried to dig into what's going on in the housing market Jordan is a really excellent chap, a really interesting economist. You know, he says it as it is. If you're not following Jordan, you can you can find him on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And I think it's important if you're interested in business and finance and property, I think you should give Jordan a follow. He is the chief economist at PropertyPal, the top uh, platform in, in real estate in the country. And I've been talking to Jordan now. This is his third contribution to the podcast and I'm really grateful that Jordan yet again was very very gracious with his time we had a very wide-ranging conversation about the housing market about the fact that transactions are starting to have started to increase substantially given the pent-up demand we, we probably expected that we talk about the availability of finance we talk about the mortgage market we talk about the non-performing loans we also then start to talk about the wider economy and, and why it's so important that people actually get back to work, get back contributing to the economy. They go in and buy your cup of coffee, your scone, or whatever it is you buy whenever you go into the, the city centre or go into the town, that we get that, that environment, that working environment back where we can keep our economy going. I think it's really important. And we have a very wide-ranging conversation in this chat I have with Jordan. And I just wanted to say thanks again, Jordan, for your contribution to this. So let's roll the tip. I hope you get something from this. Have a pen and paper at the ready. Let's go. Jordan, good morning. You're really welcome back. This is your third appearance on Money and Plants. How have you been keeping? 
Hi, Connor. How's it going? Uh, very good, thank you. Yes, uh, I think you told me the other, the other day it's been two months since it was on, which I couldn't believe. It felt like it's been about two weeks. Um, my, my internal calendar is a bit confused with, with what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's nearly two months. It's like two months next week, but it's been, uh, it's been an incredible time. And we said off, off uh, before we started recording, but I'm, I'm starting to see uh, pandemic fatigue in, in, uh, when I'm out and about. I'm back, in, I'm back in work. I'm back in the office. What about yourself? Are you back in the office or are you still working from home? No, we're still, we're still working from home for now. We're starting to have discussions about returning to the office, especially now we've got the, the test track and trace system, things like that being implemented. Uh, we're looking at bringing everyone back um, to fit their unique circumstances and in, in a safe way to do so, obviously. So we're having those conversations now, but I mean, I'm starting to get the Zoom fatigue and, and stuff like that and ready for some more social interaction with my yeah. colleagues. I think so. I think it's something that we're, we will get into. There's there's loads of stuff that I'd love to, that I want to try and talk to you about, and and we've only had a certain amount of time. But if we look at the three sort of areas that I'm sort of focusing on in this this episode, I wanted to sort of drill into the most recent property pile data because you you guys have been sort of leading the line, you're market leaders in, in data and research, and you know I've been fascinated sort of by your research to date. So I wanted to talk to you about the most recent data. I think we should then, we touched on the last time, we talked about the commercial property market and you know the whole idea about getting back into the office and the importance of that. I'd like to cover that with you. And then finally, we can touch on maybe access to finance and, and the situation within our banking system at the moment and how important that is that monies remain available. So I suppose, do you want to take the lead on the most recent property research? What are you guys seeing out there in the marketplace? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Connor. So... Uh, I think, yeah, I'd say last time was almost about two months ago. So we were just at the point where the market was about to reopen. So what we have found since since the housing market kind of has reopened for business has been a huge uptick in activity. I mean, it's, it's, it was kind of expected in a sense, you know, you close your market during what's normally the peak time of the year. Uh, and a lot of that activity is going to be deferred right through until the summer, which we're, which we're seeing feeding through at the minute. Now, we released uh, a Q2 report there, which was sort of a high-level summary of what we've seen feeding through in the site in terms of new supply coming, the price levels, overall inquiry levels. And well, firstly, from, from, from a transaction side of things, we have found that in the second quarter of this year, the total number of homes completed um, was down around 66% compared to this time last year in Northern Ireland. And that was the most of all uh, UK nations. So essentially, that, that's what we were saying now, the market was, was all but closed during that period. Now, in, t- in terms of prices, and this is kind of the one which everyone's kind of talking about at the minute, you know, or, or is there going to be a house price crash? Is it going to be stable? Um, and certainly what we've found thus far has been very minimal impact in prices. Um, overall, I think uh, prices in the last three months fell by about 0.5% um, across the aggregate total. Now that there was a bit of difference in the underlying styles there, I mean, Houses, for instance, uh, are showing more stronger levels of growth compared to apartments. Uh, and that may be linked to new demand patterns as a result of COVID. And um, we also released some research earlier in the year, uh, which really showed that people's new demand priorities, you know, they, they want access to a garden or an outdoor space. Home working is clearly much more important now, so they need the additional bedroom or, or reception, wherever it might be, to, to work from home. And things like that, and obviously being in areas of strong internet connectivity, um, are all going to be really important roles. So. I don't think it's going to be a universal impact on prices, uh, you know, across the board. Some areas will do better than others in certain property styles. Um, supply has also rebounded very quickly. July there was one of the, the, the biggest months we've seen for new properties coming to the market. Uh, and the inquiry levels are through the roof. I mean, I think we're sitting at around uh, 200% inquiry levels on, on levels this time last year. So short term, there seems to be a huge appetite for the property market. The medium to longer term, which, which we'll probably get into a wee bit, clearly depends on the economic outlook, um, which in turn depends on how the pandemic continues to develop and, and generally um, restrictions on activity and things like that. Um, there's, there's, sorry, go on. No, I, I was listening to an interview during the week where the one of the sort of leading estate agents was on and they had this, and I've, I've actually spoken to a couple of developer friends as well in the last couple of weeks. And what they're seeing on the ground is you know, they've never been busier, uh, quote, mm-hmm. uh, on the radio interview. Uh, and then the developer friend said that, you know, they've just been selling lots of houses in the last four to six weeks. And like, I understand that. And that, that's a really, really positive, positive development, because whenever you're in the complete lockdown, the market is shut for a few months. 
you know, it's to be expected then that that pent-up demand will actually come into play. So that's what you're seeing as well then in the property, pal. Yeah, certainly all, all the short-term indicators at the minute are, are extremely positive. Um, as I say, people, people have been confined to their houses and they have been assessing their housing needs. So a lot of people have come out who were maybe, you know, halfway through a transaction, have been able to complete that. Some other people are keen to move now as a result of their current living uh, position. Uh, and at the minute, the short-term noise is, is generally very positive. The, the concerns are clearly for next year as we get into the sort of the, the labour market implications of, of the recession uh, and how that may feed through into the property market. But we've already seen as well, you know, the government have played their role in trying to stimulate the housing market activity. We've had the stamp duty announcement, which will essentially cover almost nine, more than 99% of transaction activity in Northern Ireland will be uh, exempt from paying stamp duty now, which, which will be a a bit of an upward pressure through in prices. Uh, in England, they're looking at uh, reforming the planning system to speed up development processes. And they've also extended the help to buy scheme, which um, again is a, is a method to try and get uh, more first time buyers on the market. So the government is, is really trying to push boosting transaction levels and trying to stimulate some confidence into the market to, to keep going through the next few months at, at rates that we're currently seeing. How, how important do you think that that, that I always get a bit. Um, I've never paid much attention to the stamp duty sort of changes over the years because my sort of view would be, well, if you're going to buy a house, like the stamp duty is stamp duty and just borrow the money and, you know, it's included. It wouldn't put you off or encourage you to buy it. It never did with me anyway. I'm just wondering how influential do you think that stamp duty uh, situation that the government brought into play, how advantageous is, is that actually to the property market? Yeah, so, I mean, stamp duty is a very popular popular tool for the government to, to play with. They did that after the, the last uh, financial crash. And it's certainly a factor which will, which will be really beneficial for markets in Southern England, notably London, you know, because average property prices there, you know, between 450 and 500,000. So you're, you're talking about typical stamp duty payments of around anything over 20,000, 20 to 30,000 in, in London. In Southeast, a bit less than that. As you go into more affordable parts of the UK, such as the northeast of England and the Northern Ireland market, where, where average prices are closer to sort of 140k, well, first time, but as the rules previously existed, first time buyers didn't pay stamp duty up to 300,000. So there's no, not going to be any cash savings there for that side of things. Home movers, you know, as they're, they're moving up, you'll maybe save sort of two or three, four thousand pounds in that part of the process, which which is a sizable saving, absolutely. But it's in the scale of buying a house. You know, it's not going to be a silver bullet suddenly to, to kickstart um, a price saving there. As I say, though, stamp duty is mainly about boosting transaction activity. So I think a lot of those buyers in sort of more expensive markets in particular are going to fast track their activity and they'll look to, to avail of this tax break while they can, which might have some indirect benefits. If it does have that sort of price stabilization um, through, the, through the next couple of months, that might help lenders, which I know you said at the start, we're going to talk about access to finance. And I'll say more about that at that stage, but so there may be some indirect benefits of, of the stamp duty reforms there. Well, let's let's drill into that a little bit in terms of the what. So, so what we sort of all accept and know. So we're in the middle of this pandemic, sort of five or six months in, and anyone who was going to sort of wanted to buy a house or sell a house, they probably still want to buy a house and probably still want to sell their house. Um, so then, if if you can imagine the demand and supply, and accept that that's still more or less there, it hasn't really changed. Albeit there's anxiety and a bit of nervousness around the marketplace and the economy. How this will all then follow through and play out has to be the availability of mortgage products. So, and I know yeah. you, you guys have been tracking this because this for me is the is the ultimately key to all of this. And I'm wondering then, have you seen any change in the availability of mortgages? Which, would, which has a huge impact then on the, pro the mortgage and the residential property market. Uh, yeah, so that's, to me, that's the number one issue facing the, the challenge facing the Northern Ireland uh, housing market recovery at the minute, because in short, the answer is no. And what, we've, what we have found is lenders have significantly tightened their criteria, whereby if you have sort of a 5, 10, even into the sort of 15% deposit, um, generally there's a much, much lower amount of, of products available there. And, you know, whilst we're saying the demand is really strong at the minute and the supply is picking up, that's all really good signs of, of a housing market recovery. But if you can't get a mortgage to buy the property, it's only going to go so far. So, for instance, we, we kind of passively track um, how many deals are available in the market. And back in sort of February in a pre-COVID world, um, for less than a 10% deposit, there, there weren't that far off 100 deals available um, at rates of interest around 1.75% 
or so for, for typically an average price property for over a 30-year term. The most recent data that we have there suggests there's only, only a handful of deals available at that level. I think it's, at the minute, I think it's only HSBC and Nationwide and, and Bank of Ireland have, have a product there with, with some caveats. But even within that, you know, they have capacities on how many they're willing to offer. And those deals, few deals that are available are at a slightly higher rate of interest than, than we would have seen back in February. So generally, lenders across the board have tightened their belts. And that, that, that's going to be the big issue here. It's whether or not these deals return to support the, the demand that we're seeing at the minute. Yeah, I think, I think that's a real issue. So, you know, we, the, the sort of, if, if for the regular listeners who are listening to the podcast, I, I have always sort of aired my concerns around the non-performing loans, the availability of finance. You know, it, it's generally accepted that unemployment is going to increase over the next number of months as furlough comes to an end. That's sort of all playing out and happening now. And my view would be that, you know, the banks are going to be under serious pressure and we'll get into that uh, shortly. And there's going to be a dearth lack of mortgage products in the marketplace. That, that's where I think a lot of people fail to join the dots in the residential yeah. sort of market. They don't really get that part. But, you know, for me, there's an obvious solution there. And I'm all about, like, what I'm trying to stimulate in these conversations is, well, what, what are the solutions to these problems? Because we have so many problems today, but where are the entrepreneurs and the people who are going to fix them? And I think one solution that the government and Rishi Sunak and the Irish government should be looking at as well is introducing some kind of a mortgage fund for first-time buyers where they can lend the money, they can borrow the money now at pretty much 0%, and they can create that stimulus and sustain and protect the mortgage markets right across the UK and Ireland if they announce and launch this fund. And they could maybe do it, Jordan, through the British Business Bank. They have the infrastructure there set up. They've done this with Siebel's around trying to protect, mm -hmm. lend money and stimulate the uh, economy for, for businesses by making that money available. And I think we're now getting to the point where we should be lobbying or talking about the government coming up with some kind of fund which would stimulate and protect the mortgage market and the house market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there needs to be innovative solutions to these challenges. I mean, just to give you it in numbers terms, for instance, in Northern Ireland over the last sort of three or four years, about 60% of new mortgages are for first-time buyers. Uh, and of those, about half of those first-time buyers have less than a 15% deposit. So you just, you, very simply, you work through the arithmetic there and you're essentially saying a third of the new mortgage market in Northern Ireland is for first-time buyers with less than a 15% deposit. So if you restrict that lending, you know, overall transaction activity is going to be much lower. There's no getting around that. Now, from the lenders and to defend the lenders, you know, they have faced huge challenges here as much as, as all businesses have as well. You know, they're under operational capacity constraints, particularly a lot of resources they're having to dedicate to, you know, processing existing customers' uh, needs, whether it's for payment breaks or credit, or credit card issues and things like that. So they do face their own operational challenges. But there's no doubt as well, they're clearly monitoring the risk climate uh, and they're concerned of potentially falls in house prices and they need to have a responsible lending that but there has to be a balance of, of of risk sharing here because clearly first-time buyers need to get on the property market as much their their aspirations haven't changed uh, and at the minute without those lending products there it's putting so much pressure on the likes of co-ownership as an affordable housing solution or else it's going to push more demand into the private rented sector and um, in which case then you could be paying a lot more in a monthly commitment than you maybe otherwise would have been paying in a mortgage and, and you can get caught in the sort of renter's trap there so there, there's there's wide-ranging issues of, of a restriction of credit and any sustainable economic recovery needs the finance system to play its part. Yeah, I, I think there was, there was I'm obviously tracking the financed uh, news and developments every day at the moment and have been for months, but there was what I would describe as, I thought it was a little bit sinister and a bit nasty, I'm not, I'm not naming the bank, but um, where they're looking for uh, first-time buyers, you can correct me here, Jordan, that you know, they have to basically qualify where they got their deposit from. Um, and yeah. I thought that was yeah. a bizarre policy. Like, who, what, what, what person then within a bank said, well, look, you know, your deposit, if it's 15 or 20%, well, that has to come from you. And yeah. we all know that parents and, and, and people have helped people get on the property ladder, and that's obviously taken all of those people out of the market. Exactly. It was a really weird one. Um, it's what came out during the week that one of, one of the big lenders who, who is operating in the, that 90% range have said they, they will continue to lend there, but with the caveat that 
the, the buyers will have to prove that at least 75% of their deposit has come from independent savings. I, it hasn't been gifted from parents or grandparents, yeah. which is all but essentially saying you, you need to save at least sort of 10 to 15 grand on your own without getting any support, which, which is wholly implausible for a lot of the first-time buyer market. So it, it felt a really strange one for me, given I kind of thought the bank's sole focus here is, is clearly on making sure it's affordable and making sure it will be repaid without risk of default. Whether or not that money has been gifted to you from, from parents or grandparents shouldn't really have bounds on that decision. So it was kind of an odd one that I don't really understand it. And, and it, the cynic in me suggests that they've done it so as they can be active in that lending criteria, albeit that they know they won't actually do that much lending because how many people it will omit under those rules. Yeah, I, I, I just can't get my head around it. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy whereby you're, you're basically just shutting down a huge percentage. I mean, I, I don't know, but anecdotally, I, I would say at least 50% of first-time buyers get some kind of financial assistance, at least, from the parents. Or, you know, I think there's probably data on that, but I just thought it was a really bizarre, I suppose, unwelcome development and hope, hope it's not uh, some, you know, hope we're not going to see other banks, you know, coming up with those kinds of ideas because it certainly won't help the property market. There's, there's no doubt about that. So sort of your outlook would be, um, and you can correct me then, for as long as the mortgage products stay available, um, you'd be fairly hopeful that, you know, this, uh, over the next three months anyway, you, you don't see any really sort of downturn in terms of the trans- upturn in transactions. Would that be fair? Yeah, I, I think the summer the summer is going to continue to be pretty strong activity. There's, say, there's still a lot of that pent-up demand feeding through, new supplies returning. I think prices will be largely stable over the next few months, but um, and transaction levels will be supported by that. As you get into sort of Q4 this year, into Q1, Q2, 2021, I think that's when I'd be a bit more concerned about the market's outlook, largely because that's when we'll start to see the real effects uh, of the labour market implications and a weaker labour market position feeding through as the, the major government schemes, notably the, the furlough scheme and the self-employed income support are unwound. That's when businesses are really going to have to, to make the decisions whether or not they can bring all their staff back, bring some back, bring them back and reduce ours. Um, but either way, they're going to have to start to fit the bill uh, in, in that side of things. So that's when I think, uh, and nearly all the commentators would agree, that's when we start to expect to see uh, the unemployment rate notably tick upwards. Yeah, so one, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about actually then, so is, is sort of moving on in the conversation on, on a wider economic uh, basis, the importance for me anyway. I mean, I, I have an office in Belfast City Centre and my team, we've been sort of getting in out of, the, out of the office the last few months anyway, respecting social distancing with a small team, and we can, we can sort of work in that kind of environment, and, it, and it's been working well. But the city centre at times has been like a ghost town. And to be honest, like, you know, it's, it's, it's frightening sometimes whenever you're walking around all the various streets and the shops are now all open again. You know, we've, we've this evolving, uh, I suppose, healthcare message where it's mandatory now to wear masks in shops from Monday, which is probably a good thing, which keeps everybody safer. That's fine. But how important do you think it is? And Peter Weir, to be fair to him, and I expected this to happen as well, uh, has announced in the last 24 hours that all school children will return to, to school full time um, in the upcoming couple of weeks, which again, mm-hmm. I think sort of had to happen, right? That's my sort of personal view. But all the school kids are going back to school. So like how important do you think it is um, that everyone sort of starts to migrate back to work? And on the backdrop of that, I do know that NatWest who own RBS Ulster Bank, like the Ulster Bank and the city centre aren't back to January, I believe, and PwC came out in the last couple of days to say, you know, most of their staff won't be back to next year. And I know some of the big legal practices because it's been really difficult to close out deals that I've been doing in, in, in my work because, you know, it's very, very hard to get in touch with lawyers and get the paperwork, anything that used to maybe take a week, Jordan's now taking a month. So like mm-hmm. how, how important on an economic context is it that we all sort of start to get back to work in our offices? How do you see that playing out? What, what, what significance is that to the overall economy? Um, absolutely critical for a wider economic perspective. We need to get people back to work just to have the foot flow uh, coming through our, our cities and the, the impacts that has on wider rounds of spending, you know, popping into the shops, getting the takeaway coffee, buying your lunch, whatever it might be. You know, you need a thriving sort of city centre environment to, to support those wider rounds of economic activity. Um, now, even the point you made around schools, you know, clearly that's a new announcement's come in there. Um, 
you know, everyone will have their personal views on that. Clearly, uh, the, the number one issue has to be around maintaining the, the safety of everyone involved in that process of, of getting kids back to school. But the wider services have to be there just as much around childcare issues and things like that. Um, you, you know, for after school and things like that, you know, if you are back in the office. So the commercial sector as a whole, uh, there's no doubt it's going to go through a restructuring phase here. I mean, lots of these big premises, some of the ones you cited there, they've maybe assessed their business needs and realized, okay, we don't need to have this big an office space. If we're only going to have people in sort of two days a week, three days a week, whatever it might be, you know, they, there's no doubt they're, they're reassessing that there. But more generally, you know, there, there's a conversation about the role that cities play here, you know, around... It has to become about the experience you have in a city. You're going there to shop and to have fun and experience the culture and the recreation that a city offers. Uh, and if we do have this change in the business landscape in cities, whereby the commercial footfall, in a sense, starts to come down a wee bit, that opens opportunities for other elements of the city. You know, that office space can be used for other means. Uh, and particularly in England, I mean, a lot of that has been focused around and um, you know permitted development rights whereby that is converted to residential living environments now in belfast in particular that has to come with a thriving social scene associated with it you can't just not have the space converted to houses uh, and think that the, the demand will be there if it is still a ghost town environment you know that has to be a fully integrated approach and um, i mean there's there's even examples i heard of, of big companies who are, who are who are coming into the landlord space i think it was john lewis had said they're moving into the residential space whereby they're putting their their now free excess space into good social use whereby they're going to become a landlord and ikea has started building homes in sweden uh, and i think one of the the westfield london's uh, house of fraser offices in london has converted that into a WeWork style uh, premises for tech startups so businesses are diversifying and, and they're all considering this of how they use this space if they don't have the same volume of staff in 24-7. Uh, and to be honest, that's no bad thing. I mean, you can have the productivity benefits. It can, start, it can suit people better to have some days working from home. You know, we don't all need to be commuting at 9 a.m. in the morning to be on the same roads in our cars to get to the same office to start at the same time. You know, we, this, this period of anything... You know, businesses have been assessing their needs clearly. COVID has just amplified this the role that technology can play in servicing um, commercial premises. From my personal perspective, it has to be a balance though. Um, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't want to work from home full time. I guess that there's a lot of people who would want to do that, but there's certainly a balance to be struck between being in the office, having your social interaction, supporting the wider hospitality and recreation industries that, that are there. Um, but also having your time to, to get on with work in the house and, and manage your own sort of childcare in unique circumstances. Yeah, it's, it's very complex. You know, as I said to you before we started recording that I'm reading about the Spanish flu in 1918 and, and how that pandemic played out. Because I was trying to get a feel for, like, this has all happened before. We've had pandemics before. And it's fascinating how uh, what happened in 1918 is actually playing out to me with this pandemic because like we're only six months in there's going to be no vaccine uh, in my view in the next six months anyway i had dr patty mallon who runs st vincent hospital on the podcast a couple of weeks ago he's been sort of one of the leading voices of common sense in the republic of ireland and he he didn't he wasn't overly sort of uh, confident that there'd be a vaccine he was more sort of saying that there'd be a number of medicines that might sort of treat the condition um mm. And, and that, sort of, that sort of tells me that, you know, I think I've been saying this to close friends that I think the way things are at the moment is going to go on for 18, maybe a couple of years. It's going to be a, a period of flux. And within that, there's so many things that that's going to impact. And one of the, what you, you did set out at the beginning of this piece of the conversation about the restructuring of the commercial property market and the commercial sector. And obviously, you know, I'm a charter surveyor myself, been in property for 20 years. And there's the office market and then there's the retail market. And I think, you know, as I'm walking around the city centre, you know, a lot of retailers have committed to long-term 5, 10, 15-year leases. They've committed to rents. They've submitted business plans to the landlords pre-COVID on the basis that their turnover was going to hit a certain level. And what I'm seeing now talking to customers and clients of mine and my debt businesses, some of the turnover in some of the shops, for example, in Belfast is down in some cases, you know, 60, 70, 80%. And the challenge then, I'm involved in some of the actual restructuring of leases in town at the moment, where I'm acting for some of my retailer customers, is landlords, for the most part, are taking a very pragmatic and understanding approach to a lot of retailers. Because, 
you have the odd blue chip tenant in Belfast, like Tesco's and Little and House of Fraser's, maybe 10 or 15% who have bigger balance sheets. But I mean, I think it was you, Jordan, who's, who gave me this statistic, and I have used this in other conversations where we have 73 odd thousand businesses, small businesses in Northern Ireland with less than 10 employees, and most of them have no cash reserves. And I think what we're starting to see is, is a real sort of problems are mounting in the high street, tensions are, are rising, and landlords and tenants are having this you know, litigation. They haven't really hit the lawyers yet, Jordan, but there is certainly ongoing discussions around payment of rent. And I think my, what I'm trying to do and encourage people is to stand back and sort of work with, work with each other. And I think what's going to likely happen in the next two years is you're going to see a lot of leases convert to the more European model of turnover rents. Uh, yeah. where we'll get a share, maybe 10-15% of the turnover of the shops. And I think that would be a good thing. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, I, going back to your earlier point around the, the path, whether we have a vaccine, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist and I, I wouldn't speculate on when that will happen. I, I follow the news as much as everyone does in that. But it certainly seems to be that we're going to have to live with the virus. And, you know, we have to manage our way of doing that safely whilst returning people to work. Because as you say, we do have a micro-based economy and we have lots of small businesses who simply need people to be out and spending for their livelihoods. Uh, and we can't afford to be in a position where, whereby we continue to operate in lockdown, we stay in our homes and we don't go out. We have to go out and support these businesses. And I, 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 my personal view is the face masks point, again, it's, it's quite a controversial topic at the minute. Uh, it makes perfect sense to me. You know, we all put a face mask on. We do it in public transport. You go into shops. It keeps people safer. We use the, the, the tracing system. Uh, and we take all preventative measures as best we can. But we have to be doing our best to support these businesses as well. Um, uh, and in terms of the turnover-based lease, again, yeah, you're right. You know, the, these companies have signed up potentially years ago, recent months, whatever it would be, based on a fixed tenancy agreement. Uh, and they know what their fixed costs would be. But they, 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 they didn't prep for... A pandemic whereby they had no customers either so they, they can't continue to pay on a fixed basis it has to be a more equitable burden sharing between the landlord and the tenant uh, and this turnover based model seems to make sense i i think connor you might know this as well i think legal in general had come out there a couple of weeks ago i think i'd seen this in john campbell's twitter feed that they say that they had come in to this turnover based model which as you say is more prevalent in, in different economies across the world but you know it sounds like a sensible decision because particularly retail and hospitality the rents, the, the levels of, of arrears there that you, that you had mentioned and, and what levels are down is, is catastrophic and it can't go on. So there needs to be a rethink of the existing models to, to fit this new world that we're in. So I think, I think there's going to be a, a complete restructuring of, of debt in all of this because we'll, we'll finally finish up and talking about banks and non-performing loans and, and, and writing down loans. But I think if you look at, if you walk any street in Belfast city centre, and this is right our provincial towns, but Belfast is probably the strongest commercial core. It's coming down with independent retailers. And, you know, I know that some landlords have, have written off the, 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 the months that it was uh, illegal to trade. Um, other, other deals have been done around part payment of, of rent. But I think, I think a lot of uh, independent retailers will end up and are in the process of restructuring their leases. And will probably go into two to three year short term leases, maybe an element of turnover rent. And, and I don't think it's a, it's a bad thing that the relationship between the landlord and tenant will become closer over the next two to three years because I do think we need to work together as much as possible. Because one thing that the last crash taught me, because I was in the middle of it at that time, I was a surveyor in Lambert's Northampton, which it is now at the time, is if you have a tenant that leaves your building from an investment perspective, you know, the chances are it could be void and vacant for quite a number of years. And I just think it's very important that people continue on with this more pragmatic approach to try and keep businesses open and active because it's going to be difficult in the weeks and months ahead. Um, just I suppose, Jordan, touching then finally on the banks have come out this week in terms of AIB, Ulster Bank and Bank of Ireland have all uh, reported, I mean, losses for the first six months of 2020 in the hundreds of millions uh, of euro and pounds. And this is something that me and you, this is our third conversation, but we, we have sort of talked about this before. We are both concerned about the non-performing loans. And I think, I think it's fair to point out that Jane Har, the CEO of Ulster Bank, is basically, to be fair to her, they have, they have reported losses of £267 million for the first six months of 2020 Ulster Bank, this is. And she came out on RTE last week to say, well, the thing about it is we just don't know what's going to happen. 
But I think it's, it's worth us sort of discussing this because one of the objectives of this podcast is to try and educate uh, people and, and inform people as to what's going on out there. But how important is it, is it then that, that these non-performing loans are kept under control and that banks keep supporting businesses? Absolutely. I mean, the economy, any sort of successful economic recovery that we're going to have is going to require credit flows from, from your lenders and your banks. You know, there's no getting around that. Um, now clearly the lenders are, you know, they're all in this phase now of, of trying to set aside for what their bad debt will be. Um, and that's, that's very responsible for them, them to be doing that. But it's, it's a huge issue. If your economy goes into the experience having a, having a lot of non-performing loans um, and then you suddenly have to go into tightening your credit even more so, that could really amplify um, how bad the recession can be. So it's this sort of trade-off. We need to have lenders supporting business continually through that. You know, the bounce-back loans, the C-bills and things like that we've, that we've seen thus far, thus far have been critically important to businesses to keep going, but there may need to be more. You know, it's very simple. Businesses are they're far from out of the water at this stage. You know, the next... The next phase is all about stimulating this economic recovery, getting turnover, getting profitability back. And as you say, coming to individual uh, relationships whereby how we can start to, to, to deal with some of these arrears that they've maybe built up over time. But the finance system has an absolutely critical role to play in, in stimulating and supporting this economic recovery that, that, we, that we're about to go on. Yeah, so one of my major, major concerns, then, and just to finish up on this point, is that we have no... Um, we don't have no fiscal, we have no fiscal levers, we have no autonomy over our finances. We have to go to London and ask London for money. And we know that there's a subvention where, whereby London, to, uh, the figure is 10 or 11 billion, which, whichever one you want to agree on. But I think personally at the moment, it's imperative that the Northern Ireland executives bang their heads together and go and ask the Chancellor and Boris Johnson for a COVID fund. I think, because all of the areas that we talked about, we're talking now about banks and the importance again of lending and, and keeping credit flowing. But I, I certainly think, I mean, I have, I have put forward a suggestion of a 10 billion pound COVID fund for Northern Ireland, because I think it fits into the pro rata of the other countries throughout Europe who have similar amounts of money. But at the minute, I think we're working off about one and a half billion, according to Diane Dodds, right? And I've suggested to people like that, that they should go and ask for more money. And I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering in your economic, from an economist perspective, like, I just think I'm really concerned, Jordan, that we're going to be left behind, that Northern Ireland is left behind and our voice is not heard. And I'm not hearing anything at an executive level, which is convincing me that they're even asking for the right amount of money. And I'm really concerned about that. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on that particular point. Yeah, well, I mean, quite, quite crudely, but if you think about how an economy grows, you, you have whether the consumer spends, so you and I go out to the shops, some of the stuff we've just talked about there, you have whether your businesses invest, which is going to be troublesome at the minute, given that many are already indebted and, and facing uh, difficult trading conditions. You have whether you export less than you import. And again, the global economic backdrop is, is going to leave that in a fragile position. And you have whether your government invests. Uh, and at the minute, that is the obvious one where we're, where we're sitting at. We need to see a huge government injection through the fiscal levers that they have to start stimulating the economic recovery. And in Northern Ireland, for instance, I mean, infrastructure is seen as one which would have a really significant impact in, in getting people straight back to work and, you know, building these sort of longer term competitiveness infrastructure projects, which will boost the long term competitiveness of the Northern Ireland economy are absolutely critical. Um, but the problem with this is, Connor, you know, everyone will, will agree or disagree on what projects should be prioritized over other. And at the minute, you know, for instance, there's this talk of the bridge from Northern Ireland to Scotland, which sounds like a nice project, but it must sit about 200th place out of a list of 200 of, of the priorities of what we need to be looking at. And, you know, even this, the position that we're talking about tonight, when more people working from home, we have huge parts of the country which still don't have digital connectivity access. We have huge issues already with our um, water and sewerage infrastructure. I mean, last year, wasn't it that NI Water had come out to say, and, um, you know, after the councils and the government had released sort of housing supply strategies that they're very keen to support this, but they need one billion to service the greater Belfast market. Uh, it's great for storage capacity and two billion for the wider Northern Ireland market. So, you know, there's already huge holes in our infrastructure capacity that we need to address. But as you say, this really needs a huge injection from the UK government to kickstart their recovery by investing in, in, in our economies. And if they're really committed to this leveling up agenda, which the rhetoric seems to suggest, 
Northern Ireland really should be front and centre of being a, a focal point to, to stimulate this investment. Well, let's hope uh, someone in the executive is listening to Money and Plants, and I, I can see the names, Jordan. So I know there's a few of them up there listening, especially whenever you're on, Jordan. They're always on whenever you're you're talking. So <laughs> right, you didn't tell me that beforehand. <laughs> Listen, if there's anything, do you want to add anything else then? Or uh, I think we covered lots of stuff again. It's been a really, really good conversation. Yeah, I, I guess from my side of things, Connor. So the only other thing I would say is. There is some good stuff happening in the economy at the moment. And I always like to try and finish in a positive because, you know, amid all, all the tragedies that we've just been through and the economic damage, you know, we're clearly in a very fragile time at the minute, but we all have to work collectively with one another to start rebuilding the next phase of, of, of the economy and, and the society as a whole that we're living in. And I mean, even, you know, just some of the recent data just decided, I mean, car sales increased there in the last month, which is an important indicator of consumer driven sectors. House sales are starting to return. In terms of the furlough, you know, at peak levels, we had 240,000 people on this, which, which is really masking a sort of 30, 35% unemployment rate. But new research the weekend from the Resolution Foundation has said that already about 50% of those people are back in work. So businesses are starting to bring people back, which can only support the recovery. Yesterday, the Bank of England has, has upgraded its forecast. It thinks the economy will recover quicker than it previously had forecast due to the bounce back that they had seen in consumer driven uh, sectors of the economy. We had a huge um, investment announcement in 240 jobs in Belfast yesterday from a major uh, tech company at, at very high paying salaries. Um, you know, other commercial properties are continuing to take access to, to new businesses in Belfast. So there is some good stuff going on beneath the scenes of, of what's a really particularly gloomy backdrop. But I think it's important we, we do try and keep a the risks are very much on the downside over the next few years, but collectively we can all do our bit to try and support the recovery over the next lot of months. And that brings me to a close of another action-packed episode of Money and Plants. Big, big shout out to George Buchanan, really generous with his time, some fantastic stuff in there, lots to talk about, lots to think about. And I just think it's really interesting. It's really purposeful for me to have these conversations with people like Jordan. I'm really grateful that he takes the time out to share some of his ideas, some of his research, and some of his intellect with each of us. Because the whole idea of the podcast is to try and start some conversations to empower, inspire, and educate all of us, all of us to make better decisions in our own lives, which will help our own lives and will maybe help our businesses and our families as well. In terms of the podcast this week, it's been sponsored by Clearpath Finance, my funding business. If you need a business loan, if you need any advice or counselling around your finance or your facilities within your own business, reach out to me or my team at www.clearpathfinance.com. If you want to listen to any more of my podcasts, I have now 12 in total on my website. You will find all of the podcasts, all of the conversations on connordevine.com. That's www.clearpathfinance.com connordivine.com I'd finally like to take this opportunity to thank you the listener if you are interested or you want me to talk about a particular topic or subject on money and plants please reach out to me I've been really loving the feedback I've been getting on the show if you want to send me a whatsapp an email you'll get me on facebook twitter or linkedin your feedback is really important to me and if you're listening to the podcast on anchor spotify or google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to it I would really love you to give me a review. And also, finally, the last thing I'll ask is if you enjoy the podcast, why don't you share share it, share it with someone you think might understand and might relate to and might be interested in some of the conversations that we've been having here on Money and Plants. I've done 12 episodes in this series to date. I've had some amazing guests. I have had lots of economists on. I have had some doctors on. I have had other researchers and nutritional experts on. And I'm, I hope, I hope, I hope you've been able to get some value from each and every show. And the plan is to do another two or three of the current series. And then in September, I've got some really exciting news because I'm starting a brand new series of Money and Plants. I will tell you more about that in next week's episode. All I want to do now is wish you good health. I want to wish you all the very best. I want you to have a great weekend. And remember, look after yourself, but more importantly, Look after each other. Thank you for listening. But Brian, you know what they say? Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad.
other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. Hey! Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the right side of life. For life is quite absurd, and death's the final word. You must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your scene, give the audience a grin. Enjoy it, it's your last chance anyhow. So always look on the bright side of death. Just before.